You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Joining me right here is Matt Myers, MLB.com national editor. Matt, hello. Hello, Mike. How are you? Uh, I'm I'm very happy. It's going to be a great week. First of all, all is right in the baseball world because Mike Trout is back atop the wins above replacement leaderboards. That's how you know the season's in full swing when you can look at that and say, yep, Mike Trout is still the best. Uh, we have an exciting show today because we actually have Adam Adovino joining us later uh, from the Colorado Rockies. He's rehabbing Tommy John surgery. Uh, I talked to him earlier this week. He was really interesting. He had some interesting thoughts on rehab and the, the kind of data he uses and what he thinks about pitching at altitude. We've obviously talked a lot about Coors Field on this show, so I was really excited to talk to him. Um, and he's going to be a lot of fun to get to in a few minutes. But first, we have a lot of interesting stuff to get to. We're in the full swing of baseball season. The first thing I want to talk about, Araldis Chapman, because somehow he might actually be even scarier than he was last year, which is kind of crazy to think about because he's already the most frightening pitcher in baseball. Can you please elaborate on that fact? So here's something that everybody knows. Araldis Chapman throws really, really hard, right? Confirmed. That's not news. Uh, he is throwing the hardest fastball this year, 99.9 miles an hour, just above Syndergaard and Kimbrell, as he always does. However, he's added... 100 RPM to his spin rate this year, if you think about that. Because we know that spin rate, uh, you know, velocity and RPMs don't necessarily correlate. Like Chris Young, high spin rate, does not throw very hard. Aroldis Chapman has now added an elite spin rate to go with his elite velocity. That's terrifying. (laughs) Yeah, and as, I mean, it's it's interesting to see that the Yankees, since he returned, are 11-4. and Back to 500. Now they can kind of sort of like line up their bullpen the way they want. You're definitely seeing the in-game machinations, theoretically, are changing the way the game is being played. When you're playing the Yankees, you know, okay, it's not the, the cliche, it's now essentially like a six-inning game, right. quote-unquote. Well, I, they, they had been trying to get to that, and they were kind of wasting that bullpen for a while Definitely. because they couldn't get the lead to that, that 7-8-9 for Miller, Batances, and Chapman. But it's interesting, you look at, at uh, Aroldis Chapman, he's now got the third highest spin fastball uh, among guys who've thrown 50 fastballs behind Andrew Bailey, Matt Bush, of all people, and Aroldis Chapman is third. Behind that are guys we've talked about a lot, Scherzer, Verlander. And uh, Rick Porcello. Uh, that's really interesting. And the production has followed with the Reds, uh, 172 average against his four-seam fastball. So far this year, a .048 average against his fastball. Small that's, samples, I know, but still. That's just that's 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 just not fair. By the way, the Matt Bush thing is fascinating. It might be worth its whole other. I don't want to go for a tangent. <laughs> 75 different uh, angles on Matt Bush, right? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I think that's cool. And I just wanted to kind of mention that. There's not much more to say about it other than, oh my God, Aroldis Chapman may even be scarier than ever. And that's simply not right. And we had talked about him as maybe a, a, a trade candidate with the way the Yankees are playing right now. Maybe not. Maybe not. Let's talk about starting pitchers, okay? So earlier this week on MLB.com, uh, Phil Rogers wrote a piece that I thought was interesting. He said the best one-two combination of starting pitchers in baseball, uh, Chicago White Sox, Chris Sale and Jose Quintana, which very valid, right? Quintana is super underrated, and Sale, uh, even despite having a rough start last night against Cleveland, is off to an amazing start. But I'm curious, do you agree, right? Is that your, is that your best one-two? If, if you're going with, like, one-two as, like, both of the pitchers need to be elite, I'd probably say Strasburg-Scherzer. That's but my choice as well. If it's just, like, <laughs> one-two... One, it could be anyone. I think it's probably Kershaw and 
Take your pick. Anybody else on earth. Now, that's interesting because there's a lot of combinations here. Uh, Arietta Lester, obviously, is insane. Uh, Bumgarner Cueto, I think, is probably a little bit underrated. That's a good combination. Syndergaard DeGrom. No, even though DeGrom is a Maybe little bit Maybe not the way DeGrom was. has been. If you could sort of take like mid-2015 DeGrom and current yeah. Syndergaard, they might be the one. But right, right now, DeGrom is not quite. Right. In a couple weeks, maybe. <laughs> I would have said uh, pre-injury, uh, Carlos Carrasco and Corey Kluber because I'm the world's biggest Carlos Carrasco fan. Although Danny Salazar is now pitching insanely. But I think you're, you're onto something interesting when you say Kershaw and anybody because it kind of gets to Kershaw is so good like historically good people are talking about him like 1999 Pedro Martinez good that you could just you just pair him with an average starter which is essentially what the Dodgers have done in that rotation and right there that might be your best duo yes it's it's like the scene in White Men Can't Jump where he's like it's me <laughs> you did it you get to pick you my teammate it. <laughs> it's like Kershaw and you pick whomever it could be any number two starter in baseball or any new number any number two starter in the Dodgers it's almost like kind of unfair at this point that we sort of as good as Ariad has been I almost feel like he's still not in Kershaw's class. I mean, 323 strikeouts over the last calendar year in 253 innings. That's insane. Well, it's unreasonable, but it kind of gets to uh, how you want to value a pitcher, right? If you look over the last calendar year, so I've got Fangraph's war here. Clayton Kershaw, 11.2. Second place tied is Arietta and Sale at 7.4, which is an enormous gap. Uh, but if you look at just ERA over the last calendar year, Kershaw, 142, which is insane. Jake Arrieta, 135, which is also insane. But it's valuing different things, right? Is it Are you interested in pure run prevention or are you interested in dominance? Because that's where Kershaw comes out ahead. He strikes out more. He walks fewer. That's why, you know, that goes into his fielding independent pitching, which is 157 as compared to Arrieta's 230. Excuse me, 159 as compared to Arrieta's 237. It's a huge gap, but the run allowing differential is not that different, right? So it's like, what do you value when you're looking at, at the pitcher? I mean, obviously we've seen from Arrieta, he's done an amazing job, and this is something StatCast has shown us, at limiting hard contact. So there's something to be said. He cl- that's clearly a skill for him that is, appears to be an established skill. But to me, the dominance of Kershaw, it's just sort of, to me, it puts him at a, on a, just another, another plateau. He will end up being the best pitcher, maybe you know, Pedro Martinez, that we've ever seen live, I think, which is ridiculous. Yeah, and I think the one, the one other sort of interesting thing about Kershaw that I'm hoping that maybe... StatCast can help us get to at some point is that part of what I think makes him effective, and this is just my theory, is that sort of weird hitch he has in his delivery. He sort of just like jerks his knee. I can't even really describe it, but I sort of liken it to in soccer when a guy takes a penalty kick and he kind of does that little hesitation before and it sort of sort of throws the goalie's timing off. And there's something about the way Kershaw does that. It's not the, He doesn't have the prettiest delivery in baseball, but I can't help but think that that helps his deception and I wonder if there's a way that we'll ever get to a stat cast where you can sort of measure deception beyond just extension relative to your height like we know that like Chris Young and Yusmero Bati are deceptive because of their extension relative to their height and maybe the way they hide the ball but I can't help but think that Kershaw's hesitation has something to do with how good he is. I think you're absolutely right and, and that, that hitch is weird it always hurts my knee just to see him do it and he's done it thousands of times but I can tell you uh, well I agree with you I'd love to be able to measure something like that. Two immediately tangible reasons why he's been better this year, which it's not even fair he could get better, right? He was already the best pitcher in baseball. He's throwing his fastball more for strikes. He's just decided to go ahead, hit it, and nobody can. But he's throwing his curveball less often for strikes. But what he's doing is he's getting that curveball, you know, the, the famous public enemy number one that Vince Kelly called it, and he's dropping it down, and hitters can't stop themselves from going after it. So they either miss or they make atrocious contact on it. 
right? So they're going after that, and then he's pumping the zone full of fastballs, and that's how he gets his absurd, you know, whatever he's up to at this point, like 90 to 5 strikeout to walk ratio, which is well on its way to an all-time record. Uh, he's, he's even better. I, I, that's not even right. Yeah, and, and to go back to the pitching duos uh, conversation for a second, because it, as it turns out right now, there is a guy on the Dodgers who is pitching like a bona fide number two starter and maybe does combine with Kershaw to give the best, a legitimate best one-two in baseball right now, but no one's really talking about him. I think people are, are assuming, oh, he's, he's probably talking about Kentimate. And actually, no, we're talking about Alex Wood. So Alex Wood, uh, last I checked, is going to be starting on Friday night against Jacob deGrom uh, in our free MLB Plus game, which you can see uh, on MLB.tv, and I hope you watch, because uh, I'll be on it with Will Leach and uh, Tim McMaster this week, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Alex Wood came over in that trade from the Braves last year, uh, and that, that trade is not fondly remembered in Dodger circles because they got Matt Latos, who was terrible, and they got Jim Johnson, who was terrible, and they sent away Hector Oliveira, who they paid 60-something million dollars for. But you look at Alex Wood, the first four starts this year, six ERA, not so great. 12 strikeouts and 21 innings, not so great. His last five starts, right, he has pitched 30 innings, 43 strikeouts, five walks, 267 ERA, over the last 30 days right now, he has a uh, 36% strikeout percentage. It's the fourth best in baseball. All of a sudden, he's gone from a guy who's getting hit around to a guy who looks like, oh, yeah, this is the guy everybody thought he might be when he first came up with the Braves. Yes, and speaking of deception, he's like a perfect example of a guy who's sort the of... funkiest delivery yeah, in baseball. <laughs> comes from an arm angle that you really only usually see from, you know, like lefty one-out specialist guys. But he's a starter, and when he's been good, because he's had stretches in his career where he's been good, and then stretches in his career where he's looked less good, but he's shown he could be a, a dominant starting pitcher. And we're seeing the good Alex Wood right now. The question is whether or not it's going to be, if it's sustainable. Because I worry about guys like that where when they, their delivery is so funky that maybe there's an issue of being able to repeat it or kind of losing your arm slot a little bit and maybe that's when he gets into funks. Well, you're absolutely right because uh, he spent all winter saying that, oh, I'm trying to, I'm trying to raise my arm, my, my delivery point. Because last year it got too low uh, and he'd hurt his ankle or his foot when he first came over to the Dodgers and he couldn't work on it. So he spent all winter saying, I'm going to do that, and it's going to get my velocity back. And it worked a little bit early in the season, but what happened was for this this like most recent stretch, he said, oh, I made another mechanical change. I've changed where my, my foot falls, which is fine, except that with a guy who has that kind of delivery, he's always making some sort of change. He can never keep it steady. So I think you're right. This is an amazing stretch he's on, but how long can he keep it up? That's that's the uncertainty. Yeah, well, we'll get a, we'll get a good look at him Friday night. He'll actually be, he'll be facing the Mets, and he'll be facing a, a, a hitter, one of the hottest hitters in baseball, who last year in the NLDS hit a monstrous home run with a monstrous bat flip off Alex Wood in a game when the Mets kind of roughed him up a little bit, and that is Yoenis Espinos. Yeah, I, I got to say, I'm, I'm pretty pleased with most of my predictions this year. We'll get to Marcelo Zuna in a second, but I also, I did say Yoenis Espinos is not going to do what he did with the partial season with the Mets last year. He's going to kind of go back to being a, a pretty solidly above average hitter. And uh, so far, dead wrong on that one because he has been the second best hitter in all of baseball behind only David Ortiz. Uh, if you look at his career through last year, he had a 121 weighted runs created plus, which means he's 21% better than average. So far this year, slugging 678 with a 187 weighted runs created plus, he's been absolutely crushing the ball. And he's kind of pulled off this neat trick where, yeah, he's walking more. He's doubled his walk rate, which is great. But he's not striking out more at all. He's actually elevated the ball. He's, he started hitting more line drives and, and more fly balls, more home runs. Um, if you look at his monthly launch angle from last year, you know it's kind of solidly in the eight to nine to ten uh, degree angle up until September when it shot up to 17 degrees. And we kind of look at you know 10 to 30 or so degrees being the line drive zone. Uh, this year, so far this year, 
It's 17 degrees. He's maintained that ability to elevate the ball without adding more strikeouts, uh, which is extremely rare. Yeah, and early in the season, it looked like teams were sort of exploiting that kind of hole he has up in the zone. But um, he seems to have adjusted. He's been better, as you said, better than almost anyone. And frankly, if you're assuming that, like, non-pitcher category, he's probably been the NL MVP. If you put Kershaw in a separate bucket, he's probably been the NL MVP this year, which is, as you said, kind of amazing when you consider that it was hard to imagine him repeating what he did last year with the Mets. I'm not saying he's going to do it all season because I find it hard to believe he's going to slug 678 all season. I doubt that. But it's, it's been impressive, and he's a big reason why, despite the hand-wringing about Matt Harvey and DeGrom and maybe some Mets pitchers not pitching as well as you'd expect, they're still, you know, probably, would, I think they'd be a playoff team if the season started today. Here's what's the most interesting about how impressive he's been. So he signed this deal last offseason. I think it was for, like, three years and 70-something and million, right? Yeah. But, but with an opt-out after year one. And at the time, I remember thinking, wow, that, that's a great deal for the Mets because you don't have, this guy has got some uncertainty to him. You don't really want to commit to him for like six years and $150 million or whatever. So that's a good deal. And uh, now he's crushing the ball all year. And unless he you know, completely blows out both of his knees, he's going to opt out. There's no question about that. And But now Mets fans have kind of gone the other way. And I swear, I'm not going to reference my dad every single week. But I saw him this weekend, and he said, oh, he's got that stupid opt-out. He's, he's going to be gone after this year. And it's like, well, that's kind of a good thing. That means he's playing really, really well. Like, that's that's a good outcome for you. Yeah, and it's he, he, he Cespedes took a gamble on himself, and it's going to – it looks like it's going to pay off big, big time for him because now with Strasburg locked up, the free agent market – the free agent class is very thin. Extremely thin. And he is going to, I think he's going to enter the market as like by far the best position player on the market. Uh, so he's going to he's going to be in a very good position to uh, to cash in on himself, particularly if he can, as you said, maintain even like 80% of this performance for the rest of the year. Yeah, he really has been able to carry it over. And uh, that that is stunning to me. The fact that he's outperforming the insanity he did last year with the Mets. Did not see that coming. So I'm, I'm okay. To, I'm willing to admit, you know, when I've been wrong. Speaking of... If you've been listening to the show, I think I've been talking about almost since day one at this point. Last year, I remember uh, Ozuna kind of had a rough year, got sent down. Uh, but at the end of the year, we looked at it. If, if the top 20 guys in exit velocity, of which he was one, he was the only one who did not have an above-average uh, offensive season. And at the time, it looked like he was hitting too many ground balls. Now, if you look at him this year, he, uh, at, at the time of our taping, 31 straight games on base, 158 weighted runs created, plus and 58 percentage points above average, slugging 589. Right? So this is paying off. I'm pretty happy about this. But what's interesting is not hitting the ball harder. He's actually down slightly, like a, a mile an hour or so. He's not striking out less than about a 22% strikeout rate. His chase rate is actually, his, uh, chase, uh, chase rate is actually higher. Pitches out of the zone. Yeah, well, so I'm glad you brought that up, right? He, he is actually swinging more balls out of the zone, but he's missing more. So it, it's gonna kind of counterintuitive to say, oh, he's, he's missing more and that's a good thing. But it's super a good thing. I remember uh, I had Chris Coglin on a, a couple months ago, and he said, I'm happier when I miss outside the zone because I don't want to just say, oh, I grounded out weekly, but at least I made contact. I'd rather live the fight another day. I'd rather get that good pitch. That's kind of what Ozuna's doing because his contact outside the zone, uh, even though he's going after more pitches, he's making contact with fewer of them, 59% is down to 53%. And we know every hitter in baseball, uh, you know, maybe other than Vlad Guerrero when he played, it's bad to make contact outside the strike zone. And you look at Ozuna here, he's hitting 212 when he makes contact outside the strike zone. He's hitting 402. When he makes contact inside the strike that's zone, that's real good. So, and that's kind of what he's doing. He's not making contact with those balls. He's not going to get, uh, you know, good con- a good outcome on. Although it seems like maybe that's not on purpose if he's actually going after more. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, he's you know, 
Credit where it's due, Mike. You were on the uh, Ozina bandwagon <laughs> early, and so far you're looking, uh, you're looking, uh, you're, you're looking good. The, the launch angle is uh, right in the line drive zone too, as well, which has gone up from, as you said, uh, from basically hitting ground balls to basically being right at the low end of the uh, the line. Yeah, drive and, we, and we saw that after his demotion last year. He yeah. came back up and stopped hitting ground balls and was solidly above average. So it's interesting to say, uh, for the moment, and I'm, I'm not going to say this long term, Marcelo Zuna, Christian Yelich, John Carlos Stanton. Stanton is the least valuable Marlins outfielder right this second. Right now he is, and it might be the, it might be the best outfield in baseball right now. Yeah, them, them are the Pirates. Like, yeah. it's really got to be. Um, we're going to get to Adam Adovino from the Rockies in just a second, but real quick, I, you know, we, we've been talking about Ozuna. We've been talking about Cespedes. Obviously, we're talking about launch angle a lot, right? And uh, launch angle is important because exit velocity is super cool and easy to understand, but you got to hit it in the right direction, too. You can hit the ball 100 miles an hour straight up. You're going to be an out. So um, I think an interesting piece that we're going to have on the site, uh, you know, today or tomorrow is kind of looking at the combination of exit velocity and launch angle and sort of looking at the balls that are almost guaranteed to be hits, right? Like if you have a combination of, say, 106 miles an hour at 27 degrees, that's like a 979 batting average. It's almost the best thing you can do. But we came up with a couple of these combinations where just once or, or just twice, it's actually been an out. And uh, what I found interesting is there's a couple of different reasons for that, right? It could be because uh, a guy perfectly playing the shift or a phenomenal outfielder or hit it to the deepest part of the ballpark. And uh, so I think that's going to be kind of cool because you can really see that as a hitter, you can do everything right and still not find any success out of it. Yeah, a great example you mentioned here is um, Josh Donaldson hit one, as you said, with the 979 expected batting average right into the triangle at Fenway Park, a point, a point, a ball, point in that ballpark that basically doesn't exist Right. Anywhere else. So it was like the one place where it actually was allowed to be caught, right? Yeah. And most parks it would be off the wall or out, right? And, you know, Jackie Bradley caught that ball. He's a good defensive center fielder. But I think that's less about Jackie Bradley making a play nobody else can play and more about him being in the position in that outfield where nobody else really has that opportunity because you're right, that ball's out or it's off the wall or something like that. Um, I thought another one that was interesting, Troy Tulitsky, you know, not having the best season. And part of it's because of plays like this. He hit one 107 miles an hour. 24 degrees, that is a 980 expected average. 47 times out of 48 times it's been a hit this year. Didn't happen for Tulewitzki because he hit it to Danny Santana, uh, who is a converted shortstop. He's playing center field for the Twins. And uh, two problems with that for Tulewitzki. Number one is Santana plays one of the deeper center fields in baseball. Uh, and I think we've seen that with guys who are inexperienced in center. Uh, Ian Desmond and Chris Owings, I think, are the two deepest center fielders right now. And they're both converted shortstops, as is Santana. Uh, but Santana is also really, really fast. We looked at his average home the first time and just competitive plays, which we've talked about, 90th percentile and up. 3.9 seconds, second only to Billy Hamilton. Better than Billy Burns, better than D. Gordon. So what happened is Tulitsky hit it deep to a deep spot where a deep center fielder who can run really, really well was able to track it down. Uh, and that's just, if you want to talk about bad luck, that's bad luck. <laughs> So maybe things will turn around for Tulowitzki after all. Yeah, I guess. So anyway, I thought that was interesting because these are the kind of things we can measure, and it's really important to marry launch angle and exit velocity. So uh, keep an eye out on that for the site. Keep an eye out for that on the site coming very soon. Um, so anyway, I thought that was fun. Let's go to Adam Adovino now. So he's uh, rehabbing his injury with the Colorado Rockies. I talked to him a few days ago about rehab and pitching at altitude and you know what he does with spin rate and everything. And uh, he was really interesting, and uh, I enjoyed talking to him. So uh, Matt, thanks for hanging out with me. Let's go listen to Adam Adovino. Sounds good. So, Adam, I've seen a couple of interviews with you where you said that you like to look at your own metrics online, sites like uh, Fangraphs and Brooks Baseball, uh, which I think is fascinating. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to me because I've seen guys who kind of just now are, are realizing that. I saw James Shields, for example, just realized that a few weeks ago and he thought it was fascinating. So I'm curious, how did you kind of get into that? Where did you start finding out about that? 
I just think I've always been generally curious, um, especially about pitching. So, you know, when, when you're in the minor league, you're kind of relying on coaches' feedback and the limited information that you have. So it can be a little tough sometimes to make the necessary adjustments that you really need to make. Uh, I think when I got into the big leagues again for good in 12, I was able to kind of see what I was good at, what I wasn't good at, like, you know, on a factual level, just because I could see it what was actually happening through the numbers that year. And I've tried to make adjustments each and every year to get a little better at the things I'm not good at and to kind of find out what I am good at and continue to do that. So just that curiosity kind of led me to the Internet. And then, you know, from there, you know, it's really the possibilities are endless because there's so much information these days. One of the things I, uh, I saw that you started doing is you started throwing fastballs uh, higher in the strike zone. So, in 2014, you threw uh, 28% of your fastball three feet or higher, and last year it was 46%, um, which is great. It's always been kind of a thing of mine. I think guys with good fastballs should throw them higher. And um, selfishly, the reason I ask is because I saw you quoted that you had read an article about Sean Doolittle doing that, which was uh, which is actually something I wrote. So I thought that was kind of cool. But is that uh, is that something that you really have find uh, found useful that hitters maybe kind of have a hole higher in the zone for a really good fastball? Yeah, I mean, obviously the secret seems to be out now. Everybody's doing it. Uh, but at that time, teams were just preaching throw low, throw low, throw low, and I always had a, I always had kind of an internal feeling that I, my fastball played better high, but I just kept trying to throw low because that's what I was always taught until, you know, I finally started seeing that the guys who were throwing high were having success. And, um, you know, then you dig in a little more and you find out about, you know, spin rates and different, you know, types of fastballs that pitchers, you know, possess, and then trying to figure out what I have and how to put it all together how to actually utilize it, um, kind of, you know, that's kind of been the process. But, um, you know, you see it now, like, I was just talking with John Jay, who's one of my good friends, he's a hitter on the Padres, and he's like, you know, everybody throws high now. So, kind of crazy, but that's, that's the nature of the game. Something starts working and everybody jumps on it. So, you, you know, you talk about velocity, and you've actually been throwing harder the last few years, from 92 to 94 to 96. Um, and from what I understand, it's because you had some shoulder issues earlier, and then you finally get your shoulder healthy. Uh, and not a lot of the velocity to increase. So do you think the, the healthier shoulder is kind of what led maybe to the Tommy John surgery that it sort of pushed the stress down to the weaker ligament? No, I think that, I think that my shoulder um, being healthy was nice, but I think my elbow ultimately, you know, just, just pitching as violently as I have for as long as I have, I think just kind of took its toll on me. Uh, Dr. Andrews after, you know, he did my surgery. I asked him, you know, how it looked in there, and he's like, you know, it just looked like something that had been going on for a long time. It wasn't really like one specific moment that was catastrophic in my case. It was more like just overall use. And that makes sense in my case because, you know, I've been throwing for a really long time. I've never been shy about trying to throw hard or trying to throw a lot of break balls or whatever whatever you may, you know, whatever you may have. But, um, you know, I, I think that if you really want to get technical about it, I actually think when my shoulder injury happened in 2010, it was kind of related to my bicep tendon connecting to my shoulder, and that kind of that kind of forced me to neglect my bicep for a couple of years in an effort to deflect shoulder pain. And then I think indirectly that led to some instability in my elbow, which allowed it to get looser and looser and looser over time. And kind of an interesting thing that you'll see occasionally is guys' velocities will kind of spike right before they their UCL kind of goes in their elbow. It's just one of those things where I just recall last year at the beginning of the year, my elbow feeling incredibly loose and whippy. And that's nice when you're pitching. I wasn't trying to throw any harder, but it was just happening 
And I was getting a little worried because I was like, man, my elbow's starting to ache, and I'm throwing harder and harder. Probably not a good combination, and, you know, it turned out to be that way. So you uh, obviously are pitching for the Rockies, and uh, we are a big fan of everything Colorado and Coors Field on this show. We've had Jeff Breidich on. We talked a lot about uh, you know, hitting at altitude and everything. And I think you, your career has actually been interesting because you've performed better at Coors Field uh, in a way, a 686 OPS against at home and 730 OPS on the road, which I think makes you a little bit of an outlier. And uh, so I'm kind of curious, you know, when you first found out that you'd be headed to Colorado, obviously you were with St. Louis before, what was your initial reaction? Like, oh, God, I have to pitch at altitude. And uh, what was that like for you? It was actually kind of funny because when I was on waivers that weekend and I kind of was in the dark about what was happening, kind of imagining things in my head, and I said, you know what, I'm going to get, I'm going to end up getting claimed by the Rockies. I don't know why, I just felt like I was, and it ha- and it ended up working out exactly that way. And so I decided not to be, like, worried about it. I just looked at it like, you know what, this is the Rockies. There's going to be opportunity on this team. A lot of people have struggled at Coors Field, and that's going to be an opportunity for me to go out there and, you know, have a chance. And that's exactly how it played out. You know, I came in in a tough year. A lot of people struggled, and I was able to stay out a little bit and then make it to the next season and then just kind of build off of that. When we looked at what the Rockies did this winter, it sure seemed like they were going after guys who could throw uh, a lot of good fastballs. Jake McGee, uh, Jason Mott, guys who really throw a ton of fastballs. And the idea we had, uh, and that we asked Jeff Reddick, the GM, about, was that you know, if guys didn't want to throw their secondary stuff, then at least have guys who are used to always throwing their fastballs anyway. Uh, but from what I can tell, you actually threw oh, fewer fastballs at home last year, 61% on the road and 57% at home. Uh, and I'm curious, you know, what you think about that strategy and how it applies to you. Well, I think that the biggest penalty at course field for a pitcher is your movement. Your movement, you get about 60% of your normal movement at, that you would get at sea level on your pitches. So if you're a pitcher that relies on a lot of movement on your breaking ball or on your sinker, you know, you're you're facing a higher tax for that type of strategy. Um, unfortunately, you know, I'm a guy who relies on movement. So I'm not going to change exactly what I'm doing. I just have to tighten it up and figure out how to utilize it. I think getting Mott and McGee fastball pitchers was very smart by Jeff because they're not going to be taxed as hard. They're mostly four-seam fastball pitchers. They rely on location and power, and that's something that doesn't really go away at course field. If anything, I believe you get about a half a mile an hour bump in velocity at course field. So, um, you know, I think that was smart, but I still have to be who I am as a pitcher. I've just kind of been comfortable there for whatever reason, and uh, even though my breaking ball is not breaking as much, I think I'm able to make it still look like a fastball out of my hands, and it's been it's been effective, and you know, who knows exactly why sometimes, but um, I feel pretty confident there in a way. In the past, I know you've, you've kind of focused on some other pitchers that you model yourself after. Uh, for example, I've read that you were looking at Steve Fischek because he's a fastball and slider guy who doesn't have big platoon splits, and Garrett Richards because he's a hard thrower kind of across the body. Who are you looking at now as you, uh, as you recover your elbow? You know, I watched Jake Arrieta. Obviously, he throws across his body, and he's got all the pitches that I have. Um, Right now they're a lot nastier, and he executes them better. But I, he's a guy that I've been watching. Um, it's hard to say. I mean, I was really happy with where I was at before I got hurt. Um, so I, I'm really looking forward to continuing the work that I was – the path that I was on, uh, you know, when I returned. I feel like I was onto something. So I'm just going to kind of try to keep doing that and, uh, you know, learn as much as I can, you know, in the meantime. I've learned a lot, honestly, just watching some of our guys attack with fastballs too, you know, maybe – the day that my breaking ball's not working, I kind of have a better clue of what spots I want to put my fastball in. So I think, I think you know, it's just part of the learning process, and it can only make me better. 
last year uh, before you were injured, obviously you're off to a spectacular start. You had a 10.1 shutout innings. You introduced a new cut fastball, and uh, from our metrics here at, at second, it looks like a really high spin on that fastball. And so uh, I'm curious, you know, is that is the spin rate on that something you know you were aware of, something you, you kind of track? Or what does that mean to you? Well, the cut fastball was like part of my plan to get lefties out. I knew if I wanted to be trusted in the ninth inning, I needed to get lefties out consistently. So I needed something kind of running in on them as opposed to all my pitches that run away from them, uh, you know, hard. And the other ones that come into them were slow. So I needed something hard that ran in. And I kind of toyed with the cutter that I threw in college, got the feel for it. And uh, I felt like it was pretty effective early just in terms of keeping the hitters on and off my other pitches. So, I'm not really sure about the spin on it. I, I saw that it had a high spin rate. I'm not really sure what I want on that pitch. I just kind of want it to look like my 14th fastball. So I'm not so concerned of how much it's spinning, but more the axis, keeping the spin axis as close as I can to my regular four-seamer just so that it hides the, the break a little bit. Yeah, I, I think you're dead on there. That's kind of what we're trying to get to next is separating total spin from useful spin, which is you know the spin that actually contributes to the movement of the ball. Um, just going to your slider real quick, I, I know you said that you, you throw a couple of different sliders that are similar but not the same, and um, you, you tried to actually change your arm angle a little bit to get different movement. And, you know, I'm wondering, is the ability to change that eye level uh, worth the potential risk of tipping pitches if hitters can kind of pick up on that? Yeah, you know, um, that's, that's kind of an area where I differ from some of the industry consensus. A lot of people talk about pitch tunneling or keeping your arm arm action all exactly the same. I kind of disagree. I think it is nice to have your pitches play off each other in a tunneling kind of way. That being said, if you have an ability to throw from multiple angles and make the hitter have multiple thoughts in his head about what could be coming from each of those angles, I think it just puts more doubt in the hitter's mind. And, um, you know, I, I'm a guy who throws kind of like from behind a right-handed hitter, and I feel like the more that I can, you know, walk on that line of fear with him, whether, you know, I'm like it looks like I'm stepping right at them, and the more I can do that, with lowering my arm angle at times or raising it to make them uncomfortable, I think can only work in my favor. So it's kind of where I'm at with it. I don't really worry about the risks. I just, I've always had the sense that it can work and I'm just going to go for it. Well, last question for you, Adam. Uh, you're about a year or so off of Tommy John surgery and you've been throwing bullpens. Uh, what's the latest estimate when we see you back on that again? Well, I'm, I have about four more bullpens on this road trip and then I should be facing hitters when we get back to Denver. So, you know, that should be a next, the next big step, and hopefully that goes pretty pretty well, uh, you know, in a timely way so I can get out on a rehab assignment sometime in June. So I'm hoping to come back as soon as possible, um, hopefully before the All-Star break. But, you know, you just never know. And the team's been great, and they've been really conservative with me, which I actually really appreciate. So hopefully I can get back and help our team continue to win. Awesome. Great stuff, Adam. I really appreciate it. Well, our thanks to Adam Ottavino of the Rockies. It was really fascinating, and I appreciate him taking a few minutes. Uh, really interesting stuff. Matt Myers, thanks for joining me. This has been the MLB.com StatCast podcast. We will catch you next week.